please pronounce your name correctly for me? Jackie Collins. And I have to admit, in doing research about you, uh, it's pretty tough on the internet to find you because, it well... It is, and I love that. I was going to say, it's like a double-edged sword. In many ways, you're very anonymous, but in also many ways, you're really hard to be found as well. It's a very good move for a first date. Fair enough. Which I had... My last first date was two years ago, and we're getting married, so I guess it's not going to be relevant anymore. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Now, all right, so you do lots of things, but let's go back a step to be sort of the foundation of all of this. So you work in the arts. though. Now, are you an artist yourself, or are you more of just an arts administrator? Sorry, I said just an arts administrator. <laughs> are you an arts administrator? <laughs> Well, my background, believe it or not, is in dance. So I like to consider that being an artist. I had a professional dance career for seven years and found myself constantly feeling like I wanted to be on the other side of things, making things run more efficiently and done differently. And I felt like I would, you know, had a vision of how things could be smoother and finally decided performing wasn't really doing it for me anymore. And I left my dance career and went to NYU to get my master's, kind of not really knowing exactly the path I wanted to follow. And then through that, I started as a executive director of a dance company and felt like that was the logical next step. And then that path took me to meeting a composer who wanted help scoring dance and immersing himself more in the dance community. So I helped him because I had all the contacts and I had the connections. And then I decided I love doing this. I love facilitating opportunities for other artists. I love finding talent. I love connecting two different talented people that I know in my world and then that's kind of how my path led to what I'm doing today. I'm so sad that that job didn't exist when I was young because that was one of my favorite things was just connecting people with resources or people with people. Like I love finding those connections among people. Sadly, that job didn't really exist when I was young. Yeah, I like to say, you know, my dad doesn't really understand what I do, but when I wake up in the morning, basically my role is facilitating opportunities, finding connections, and making things run smoothly. But, but do parents ever really know what we do, really? And, you know, after like teacher, lawyer, doctor, not really. No. Well, my father's a priest, so, you know. <laughs> But speaking of that, so what, were your parents creative? I'm always interested in sort of how people even get into like getting into dance and all this kind of stuff. Was this by the support of family, friends, uh, schooling? That's a good question. So my mother's brother was a stagehand on Broadway, my uncle. And I grew up literally like watching Annie on Broadway from the wings and he was married to a dancer. And I, you know, I saw the King and I and met Yule Brenner. And, you know, my family was very immersed in the arts and Broadway. 
I grew up New York City adjacent, and you know my family always made it an, a, a point to you know immerse ourselves in the cultural world and offerings of New York. So one Christmas, my grandma bought me these dolls that were from Radio City, and they were like the Rockettes of the different years. And I just thought they were the most amazing thing. And a friend of a friend of my family's was a Rockette. She gave me advice on how to audition. I unknowingly showed up eighth in line of 475 girls and got the job. Wait, you were a Rockette? Yes. That's amazing. That was part of I love it. That was the part of the professional dance career for 7 years. I started there right out of college and stayed for 7 years until I went to grad school. That's amazing. It's very rare that you sit down and like, "So, hey, what do you what did you do?" "Oh, I was a rockette." "Oh, okay." Like that's there aren't many of those in the world to meet. It feels a bit like a past life, but it you know, was a hugely important time in my life. And I made incredible friendships and learned lots of lessons. Fortunately, kept all my bones intact. And now I just like to be in the audience and go visit the girls. Same with me. I used to be a roadie. So I used to tour around with rock and roll bands doing their lights and Mm -hmm. their sound and staging Mm -hmm. and stuff. And that was like a whole lifetime away. And I cannot stand being in the audience now because of course I had that backstage passes and all access passes for, you know, a decade. And it's like, I'm kind of spoiled now. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. All right. So now you have two major sort of different things that you do. So like just fill in everybody on what these are, but also fill me in on what they are. Exactly. Yeah. So I was working for a composer and started helping him score commercials, really. And that was my first foot in the door in the advertising world. And I thought, wow, I love how chaotic and fast paced this world is. You know, everybody wants something yesterday. And that drives me. So I worked with him for a while. And through that, the agency that I was working at represented photographers. And there was so much work in the office that needed, you know, spilling over. And I started producing photo shoots. And that was another place where I just thought, like, I'm really good at this. I'm really good at making sure, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle are put together and problem solving fast paced. Um, so that was kind of like my entry into the world of advertising and photo production. And then I just started representing photographers. And my business partner and I were seeing the industry change, like not everything was a photography billboard. And now you had social media and websites with animation. And then all of a sudden, everybody started exploring illustration and murals were starting to get popular and people were following street artists. So we said, hey, we have all these connections and friendships of creative people. Let's start facilitating opportunities for them. And that's kind of where Fillin was born. 
And it feels like a baby that, you know, we worked on starting in 2016. And now, you know, we've more than quadrupled our revenue and our business and our reputation in the industry. And I feel like it's a really exciting time where brands and the advertising world are vastly expanding their resources and, you know, murals are popular illustration is popular animation is popular you know stop motion and you've got apps that need illustrative designs and podcasts and you know there's just a world of opportunity out there and we love finding talent and connecting them and facilitating opportunities all right so as a practicing artist myself i'm always wondering how do places like agencies like yours find new talents? Uh, I mean, that's a good question. Part of it is, I mean, really, I hate to say it, but a huge part of it is Instagram. So I follow a lot of different brands and artists and like to see what people are doing. So if it's like somebody like Clinique or Kiehl's and what artists are they working with? Or scouring different aesthetics and designs and seeing, you know, what's out there, looking at murals and street art in the major cities and what people are doing. So we used to find artists and now artists are finding us. And I would say every other day, I probably get an email from an artist looking for representation or looking to join our team. And that's exciting, but also we never want to outgrow our capabilities. So we're still keeping the agency boutique and small. I do read every single email and click on their website and their Instagram and look at everybody's work and try to answer everybody and say, you know, if I think they're talented, I say, keep in touch. And if we think that they can add to the agency, then we, you know, consider adding people formally. Yeah, I mean, and one thing I've always wondered about, because quite honestly, like when I was young, I'm a photographer, that's my background. And so like when I was young, which is coming out of school, what, 1998 era, there weren't a lot of agencies. There were agencies for journalism, so, you know, the magnums mm -hmm. and things like that. But there were not a lot for sort of more in the artistic, creative and even commercial endeavors as much as there is today. There's there's so many of them now. So like what what kind of characteristics do these people, these creative people have that says, you know what, I'll be able to help them. I'll be able to mold them. I'll be able to, you know, there are people I can connect them. With. Like what's the aspect that you see that says, oh, them, they're worth working with. Yeah, another good question. I mean, versatility and adaptability is obviously important. But for us, so my business partner and I have been successfully working together for more than seven years. And I think that, you know, much like a marriage, it's, it's nice when there's that cohesiveness, and we get along really well, and we don't have a tremendous amount of conflict. And what I think people recognize us for in the industry is that we are easy to work with. We're real. We're not old school salespeople with a, you know, cigarette in our mouth and a Rolodex on our desk. We make friendships with our clients. 
So to us, a huge like first step is personality. So we're going to talk to you on the phone. We used to meet in person. We're currently doing Zooms instead. But personality matters a lot to us and how easy people are to work with. Because once you're working for a client, you have to remove that ego. It's not like you're just being commissioned for your fine art and you get to do whatever you want. You know, there's a client and then there's an ad agency with three different creative directors and then there's us and then there's, you know, an artist. So somebody that can work easily and take criticism and revisions and also keep up with the pace. You know, sometimes things have fast turnaround and, you know, we are beholden to deadlines. So we have to know that we can trust our artist to do the same. These days, is it more compelling for an agency, let's say, to, to find somebody who is, who's a master of a single thing, like let's say a graffiti artist, and that's all mm-hmm. they do? Or are you looking for people that have a little bit more diversity? So they do a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and so on. Yeah. I've got, I mean, I've been asked that question before from artists. And I think the best answer to that is you should be really good at one thing. And it's great to have a style that gets you recognized. But underneath that, versatility is, is huge, right? I think I mentioned before we started, my artist, Jason Naylor, also a dear friend, lent me this microphone. He has a style but also a tremendous amount of versatility behind that. You know, like he can adapt to different styles. He can match different people's styles, but he has a look and people come to him for a look, which is important. But he has a background as an art director, so he also understands the language of the industry, which is also helpful. I was going to say, like, is that another aspect? Like a lot of young creative people think that like, okay, I'm going to be an artist. So I'm just going to like focus on being an artist. I feel like to a certain extent, like having some experiences on the other side. So working at an ad agency, working in a commercial graphic design firm, whatever kind of thing, just having some additional things to sort of round your capabilities and your experiences and your knowledge is probably more beneficial than just being creative. Yeah. And, you know, and I always tell people I respect whatever you choose to do with your career. Some people don't want to work for Toyota or pharma, you know, and and I respect that. And we do a lot of other things in the art world too. Like we have personal collectors and we place art in homes. We place art on TV shows. And, you know, there's a world out there for everyone. The Toyotas and the drug campaigns are how you're going to make money though. It's a difficult balance. I mean, I lived in Wilmington, North Carolina at a time, and I actually had some photos in the background of One Tree Hill at one point, which was sort of great fun, but it doesn't make me much money, but it was great fun to do. It's that hard balance. It takes a special kind of person, a personality that could and would do the kind of work that you all do, because not every creative person is going to be accepting of doing some stuff for a pharma company and also making some works to be in a collector's home kind of thing and not everybody has that so like is that something that can be taught or is that just something that's innate into us 
I mean, I think, again, that would probably be based on personality, right? So I do believe that, you know, if someone can check their ego and say, I, you know, I teach me how to be the most diversified, easy to work with artist, I would definitely have advice. But I think if you really hold yourself to one particular style or where you want your work to be seen, then, you know, I respect that as well. What exactly is your role? Um, partner, agent, uh, producer? What's your titles? Yeah, I like to say that agent feels like sometimes it has a certain connotation, right? Like the whatever Ari from that show on HBO and he's yelling at everybody and asking for more money. I mean, that's why I like to say like facilitator, right? Like I like facilitating opportunities, negotiating on an artist's behalf. Believe it or not, I actually like reading contracts. We can be producer, manager, you know, it also depends on the artist. Some artists rely on us for more than others. And that's why we love people like you, because I hate reading contracts. So I would mm -hmm. gladly pay you to read a contract on my behalf. Right. And lots of artists don't feel comfortable talking about money or asking for what they're worth. And that to me is what I feel my biggest role is, making sure that they are not taken advantage of and compensated adequately for their skills. Well, and that's a huge problem in all of the creative industries. I mean, most of us feel or have actually experienced the fact that we're not paid for our equivalent amount of time, energy, expertise, etc. And it's nice to have people advocating on our behalf. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's what I really enjoy doing. All right. Now, when you're looking at artists, too, something that I was wondering about, because you were saying, like, you look at Instagram and all these different kinds of stuff. Do you find that working with younger artists works better for you or more established? I don't mean young as an age. I mean, young as in maybe young to the industry uh, versus more established artists. Yeah. I mean, I think that that really depends. We, we have a, a collection of both. And to me, I mean, obviously certain things are taste and aesthetic, right? But I try to look at people's work from the lens of knowing what other people want and what brands want and what collectors want or what's trending, right? You know, we have some amazing artists that work with paper and felt and all these interesting mediums. And that sort of has trends in the advertising world, right? Like at one point, AT&T and 500 other people wanted to do paper art. And then maybe it drops off for a bit and then it comes back. But we try to have a diverse roster so that when clients come to us, you know, we can facilitate whatever they want or whatever idea they have, we can bring it to life. I mean, how does that all work? Because like, okay, let's say AT&T, because you threw it out there. If AT&T is about to propose to do a project of, let's say, felt, because I like that idea, it's fun. How do you even hear about these things? Because as an artist, we don't hear about these things. So it's like, how does that sort of even come through the grapevine? Right. Well, that goes back to the beginning of the evolution of fill-in in 2016. My business partner and I would physically visit ad agencies with books of all of our different artists and 
postcards and we'd bring, you know, taco fixings and beer and have these parties where people would come from all their offices and come out of their offices and, and view the work, you know, we call them portfolio shows. And we probably did, you know, several a month, some years, I also would fly to Chicago, Kansas City, Los Angeles, and create relationships. The good thing is, by the time 2020 came and the world shut down, I had established so many relationships in the industry that people would just email me. I had visited an ad agency in California, and they were doing an avocado campaign. And they remembered seeing one of my artists who works with felt. And then, you know, they email and say, California Avocado would love to work with XYZ artists on a stop motion campaign of these little animated avocados. So it's like I built that relationship over time. And when it came on the table for a new creative idea, they remembered seeing some of the artists. Yeah, it's it's true. I mean, the the nature of relationships and being a good person is one of those things that like in the creative industries traditionally may not be the highest of the priorities, but it seems like it's become more important these days. Like I remember in the old days, you know, there was always the crazy yelling artist saying, oh, I won't do this. I won't do that. Don't ask me to do this kind of crap. And these days it's very important to be a good, nice person and fun to work with and doing your stuff on, on time and deadlines. And that's a, a pretty big shift in the past, I'd say like 30 years or so for what creative people should be doing. Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, I have so many different creative friends just, you know, from living in New York and life. And, uh, you know, I have a friend who is a photo assistant and used to work for Annie Leibovitz and fly first class to her shoots and stay in fancy hotels. And guess what? Like that world is over. Well, she's also broke. <laughs> yeah, that too. Hopefully she paid her assistance, but that world is over, right? Like we now, I have situations where a California client wants to shoot with the photographer who lives in Canada and he's got to hide his flight and hotel in like different fees because everyone needs to bid as a local just because there is someone else that will take the job. Not that I'm undermining any, any talent, but there's a lot of talent out there. It's hard. I mean, the, uh, to a certain extent, I sort of stopped trying to be a professional photographer about four or five years ago because there is just such a glut, and I don't mean that in a negative way, of really strong, talented, creative people all over the world because to a certain extent, you don't even have to live any particular place in order to be you know, really successful at your creative endeavor because of the internet, because of all the great resources, the, the social medias, all these kinds of things. It makes it really hard to like stand out in a crowd basically. Yeah. I mean, I was just having a conversation with a friend who, you know, I think I'd mentioned I'm in my weekend home in the Catskills and people are moving to the woods because now they can work remotely. So you used to have all these creative, talented people that were like finding a way to make it work and living in New York and Brooklyn because that's where the opportunities were. But now you can be a super talented art director and work for a New York agency, but live in the country or live in Colorado. 
Oh yeah, I'm looking forward. My plan is to try and get find a nice land with like a, a waterfall, and my neighbors are so far away that I can walk out on my front porch naked and not see them. <laughs> that's that's my dream place, right? Yeah. There. I mean, I love my house and I have some acreage, but I definitely can't stand on the porch naked. Ah, you know, there's neighbors. Everybody has their own individual dreams. That's mine. <laughs> but I want to have a big fire pit. I'm very much into like cooking over fire these days. Yeah. Well, our neighbors have chickens and I like that they come and say hi in the morning. Not too early in the morning, I hope. Definitely no chickens in Brooklyn. You might be surprised by that. (laughs) (laughs) I knew some friends that had chickens in Brooklyn. Not ones that I want to come visit me. (laughs) It's true. All right. Is there anything about you that I, I haven't been able to garner from your websites and the fact that I cannot search you very easily on Google <laughs> that I should know about you and what you do? I like being asked the question, you know, are you an artist? Because it's like, what does that really mean? You know, during the pandemic, I started making soap and dried flower arrangements to entertain myself instead of binge watching Tiger King. So my answer to that would just be like, what does it mean to be an artist, right? Like there's, there's so many different things that we can all do. And um, there's another podcast that I was listening to when I was driving recently. And it's this woman who speaks to different people and calls it like the hyphen mentality. And it means like, we do so many things, right? Like if someone says, what do you do? You know, well, I make my daughter breakfast most days, you know. Which, just to be clear, that is an incredibly American question. In Europe, they never right. ask that question. They always know I'm American when I say that. I'm like, so what do you do? They're like, oh, you're American. <laughs> yeah, just like it's it's not couth to ask people, you know, where are you going on holiday? Maybe I'm going to my backyard. <laughs> there are so many things that I flub horribly in Europe when it comes to that kind of stuff. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the idea of like being creative and like what that really means. I'm a full professor at university and my wife and I teach art, primarily photography. And my wife turns to me soon after we got married. And because I don't earn a living by selling my art, she called my art a hobby. And I'm like, is it really a hobby? Because it's an interesting dilemma. Like, I mean, to a certain extent, a lot of people say, like, the only people that can call somebody an artist is somebody else calls you an artist. Like, there's the old saying that, like, you should never call yourself an artist. But if somebody else deems you an artist, then you're an artist. Exactly. Um, I'm definitely not going to make a living selling my soap. So I'll just throw that out there. But there's an art to it. Yet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My wife makes candles. I love it. I tried candles. They were harder to me than soap. I personally have made none of them in decades, so I don't know. I have no no good knowledge on that. So back to the tugboat and fill-in. First of all, why did you come up with these names, tugboat and fill-in? And also, but another question, sort of like, why are they separate? Because they seem to be doing similar things. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, So Tugboat was established before I joined, but the basis behind the name is that it was, you know, this little ship 
that could carry big things. So it's like, did you know, whether it's a still life shoot with one hand model and, you know, some risers to a major campaign with 25 different talent, a dog, a house in New Jersey and, you know, fancy catering, like our little ship could carry it all. Um, and then fill in comes from, there's like, you probably know a graffiti expression to like, you know, called fill ins. I do. Yeah. And, and we just felt like it was a, a tagline of like, you know, whatever your project is, like we could fill in the gap. And why do they act separately? We, you know, there are agencies out there, right, that represent stylists and photographers and artists and set designers and hair people. And it feels like that's a lot of different things. So kind of like, what are you good at? And we just wanted to sort of ensure that our clients felt confident that if you need a photographer, you come here and we know what we're doing. And if you need an artist, you come here and we know what we're doing. And the common thread is really just me and my business partner. Fair enough. Now, when it comes to the art side, which of course I'm extremely interested in. So the there's the commercial works that you, you sort of partner. I mean, you've got some amazing corporations that you've worked with and partnered artists with but when it comes to like the idea of like doing because i saw you do some exhibitions and you also then you mentioned that you actually put art in collectors homes and stuff like this i mean is that a big part of this because for me as a more of i'm more of a fine artist personally i don't know what our listeners what they do exactly but i'm imagining a lot more fine artists yeah Unfortunately, the, the, you know, the pandemic interrupted some of those offerings, but prior to March 2020, we were really passionate about putting on biannual shows and not even necessarily about making a profit, but we liked to provide the opportunity for our artists to show their work. And we think that so many of them are talented and maybe on the website, they show digital little things that they've done for magazines, but like they can actually paint with oil and acrylic or, you know, one year we did a skate deck show where we just gave artists blank skate decks and let them do whatever they wanted. And one of them worked with like tiny little holes in engraved in wood and created, you know, some amazing things. And people work with collage or paint, you know, spray paint, regular paint. And we loved also utilizing that as a way to come together as a community. So we'd invite our clients and all the creative people we knew in the ad world, and they got to see what these artists could do behind the scenes. Sadly, since the pandemic, people have moved, people aren't gathering, for a lot of obvious reasons, we haven't put on a show, but it is something that's important to us and we hope to resume in the future. Well, I would imagine a lot of your clients, the art design, the art, well, sorry, the graphic designers and the ad firms and stuff, they probably would love to buy the artwork of the artists that they also hired for jobs and things like this. So like, to me, I see a great sort of 
relationship between the individual people who like and appreciate your artists that they hire as mm-hmm. also people that would then be like, oh, and I want to own a piece in my home. So like that's a lovely little Venn diagram that overlaps. Oh, for sure. And we we do have creative directors that end up collecting the art of our artists. And, you know, I really miss that community feeling. We had just even just art in our office displayed and we'd have little cocktail parties and, you know, happy hours and a really consistent group of people that would show up to every single one. And it was a huge part of my social life. Like I didn't even need to go beyond work. You know, I'd I'd get up, get dressed and go to the office and it would turn into a party. And I do miss that. We all miss that. Sad. Back to something you talked about earlier, which was having a style. So like you said, you know, a lot of people have a style that they're known for, and then they also are able and willing to do other things. Is that important these days? Because like I hear both sides of the stories on that. Some people say, don't have a style and and more focus more on sort of your why you make work and sort of make, make that your style, sort of the, the story of what you make and how and why you make it versus like an aesthetic choice, an aesthetic style. Um, so like, where do you find that to be more important? So like, is the, the underlying ethos of how somebody works more important or is it sort of the visual and the aesthetic style of how they produce? I mean, I think the, the word style kind of encompasses both, right? So it's like, Basquiat had a style because he was answering the why and the how, right? And I also believe that there's natural evolution in everyone's style. I mean, thankfully, I'm not dressing the same as I dressed when I was 22, you know, but I still essentially probably have maintained a quote unquote style. So I think, um, you know, and going back to my friend and artist, Jason, his, he definitely has a very obvious look, but it's evolved and it's evolving again. But I still feel like you look at it and you know, it's Jason's work. And if you're driving around in New York and you come across a mural, even my daughter, like we'll be in the car and we'll be in Williamsburg and she'll be like, oh, look, Jason's mural, you know, at first glance, just like anybody could recognize Basquiat's work. We can these days. <laughs> now, are all of your the, your jobs that you do, do you, I guess you coordinate jobs that you that are relationships between the creatives and the people that need creatives? Are are they always sort of client down, or do artists often come and say like, "Hey, I really want to do something for this company," and you propose the other way? Yeah. And that happens a lot. And I actually really enjoy that part of it because it kind of goes back to like facilitating people's dreams and desires. You know, like an artist will come to me and say, I am dying to work for Vans or Nike or, you know, whatever it is. And we put together, you know, what we call a pitch and we find all the different contacts at that place. And, um, you know, that's definitely come to fruition as well. You know, most of our business is usually people coming to us saying this is what we would want, but we have brought 
artists to different brands and they've worked with them or used them or tried them out in some capacity. I'm still very interested in sort of the nature of like how you find your creative people and what constitutes them being worthy, I guess, of being part of the agency. It's slightly arbitrary too, because sometimes, like I said, I will just see something and I'll be like, I love, I see something in them, you know, and it's like, I can't put my finger on it. I just know that it's a style that's going to sell or be desired, you know? And I think I had a friend who was a mentor who has helped me write my bio or edit my bio because it's hard to talk about yourself, right? And I think in one of her iterations, she said something about me just having like a keen eye for talent. And, you know, I think in my life, you know, I can see a choreographer or a dancer and like, I just feel like I, I see something in, in certain people and artists, or I can hear music and just be like, that person should be scoring film and television because they have that sound or that, you know, style. Well, I mean, and that you brought up text and sort of writing about yourselves and bios and stuff. I fucking hate those kinds of things. Like they are the bane of my existence, whether it's writing a artist bio or, or a grant proposal or a, a residency, whatever kind of stuff we have to do to, to continue our jobs <laughs> being creative. I mean, do you help with that? Like do you, what kind of tips can you give for how to work with text yeah, I love to write about other people, just not myself. And I love to write about other people, just not myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And just like I don't like having my picture taken, but I represent a million photographers. I actually like bringing writing into into my role as many ways as I can. So sometimes photographers write treatments to get big jobs. And like my favorite thing to do is edit because Let's be honest, lots of artists cannot write. <laughs> Correct. And this kind of goes back to me being a performer and being an artist and feeling like there was more that I could do. And I think that that there's always been something inside of me that want that has like an entrepreneurial feel and I like writing and I like, you know, being busy all day long. Like my least favorite part of the performing arts business was sitting around and waiting. I even tried to transition from dance to acting. And, you know, I got cast in like an episode of Sex and the City and I did a film or two. And I thought to myself, I cannot believe I just spent 12 hours and was only productive for six minutes. Yeah, it's the hurry up and wait industries that drive me nuts. I did a job one time at the Kennedy Center where I was supposed to do some work and they ended up having me coiling cable. You know what that means. So just literally like taking cable and putting it in circles. Stupid. Just <laughs> dumb work. Because it was on a weekend, on a holiday, on a Sunday, over eight hours, I was being paid more than $150 an hour to do the same thing that I could do for $10 an hour at another job. And I was just like, I will sit here and do this as slowly as possible because they're paying me a ton of money for nothing. I mean, it's such a hurry up. And there's so many of these industries that are hurry up and wait and they, and it just drives me 
crazy. I like efficiency. Efficiency in organization makes me very happy. Yes, I do as well. And listen, like, is my job picture perfect every single day? Absolutely not. (laughs) Sometimes clients are not appreciative. Sometimes artists are not entirely appreciative. But for the most part, I do find what I do very rewarding and, you know, wake up and feel thankful that I get to do what I'm doing every day. And for the artists that do appreciate me, it makes it all worth it. All right. I can cut this out if you don't want to talk about it, but what's, what's the like financial relationship that goes on there? Like, is, cause like in the arts, in the fine art world, it's like galleries take 50% and then the artists get 50%. Is that something you're willing to talk about? Yeah. 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 I'm happy to talk about that. Um, you know, and it probably varies from agency to agency, but our business model is just 25% of the creative fee. And that's how we make our money. We don't, do any kind of monthly retainer. We don't charge back for any expenses. Like that 25% is how we operate our business. And it, you know, it works well. So I, I know there's agencies that charge 30, but so I think 25 is pretty industry standard. If we operate like a gallery and sell fine art, sometimes we do the 50-50 split. It sounds great. I would, I mean, as a creative person, if I had the opportunity to get paid more paid jobs and I just had to give 25% to somebody like you in order to get that, well, 75% of some income, I, why would we not want that? And I usually tell artists, I promise that it mostly always pays for itself because the way that we negotiate and the language we use we usually get them 25% more than if a client would go to them direct anyway. Plus we're, we as creative people are generally horrible negotiators. So we would probably right. already be paid 25% less just because we don't know how to fight for what we're worth. Yeah. And I'm also going to answer the email within the hour when I can guarantee the artist doesn't want to be sitting at a computer all day. No, none of us want to be sitting at a computer, but but we but we do sadly most of the time, or at least I do. <laughs> All right, is there anything that you want to address that I haven't known to ask about? Any topics? No, I mean I think earlier I was just going to expand on the hyphen concept of just you know I am an agent, I am a producer, I consider myself. And, you know, novice writer, soap maker. Yeah. Now that I own a home, maybe I'm going to be a future home flipper. I mean, who knows? I just feel like I love this idea that the, that options are endless and it's not, I'm just one thing. It's interesting because like, you know, my parents' generation, I'm obviously far older than you. I'm 48 and you are definitely not 48. So the, my parents' generation, it was normal and the tradition to get a job and basically stay with that job for the rest of your life. Like you get a career and you do that thing. Our generation, my generation, and then of course all the generations younger than me, it's very seems very normal now to be a, a hyphen, to be to do multiple things, to change careers throughout your life. Like it's become very accepted that you can do whatever you want. Basically, like when it, it arises, of course 
keeping in mind legality and finance and just general responsibility. <laughs> so like, don't become a drug dealer just because you want to become a drug dealer. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, um, and as a parent to a impressionable daughter, I love to sort of like model that you can reinvent yourself and you can change your career. And, you know, did I think that I was going to be a business owner 10, 15 years ago? No. That brings up an interesting topic, which is something that I wonder about because you talked about, okay, so you like artists who have a style, but many, many artists get very bored with being a particular style and they want to reinvent themselves and do something new or different or expand in a different direction. How do you react to when they want to do things like that? I mean, a lot of them come to us and ask it for our advice and we always have it and they listen to us or they don't. <laughs> and, um, you know, I respect that because I wouldn't be working with artists if I didn't have adaptability and, and how to, you know, react and, and adapt to their personalities. It's hard. I mean, the, to to work with creative people also takes a certain creative mind. Like we as creative people are not the necessarily the easiest or the most sort of ABC sort of thinking and thought patterns and motivations even. Like a lot of times we don't want to do things for reasons we can't explain, but we just don't want to do it or we do want to do some particular things. And it's, it, it's hard, I would imagine, to be sort of the caretaker of, of so many different creative uh, styles and personalities. Yeah, I actually, I like that, that term. I think that would go in my, in my job description slash hyphen caretaker. Mm -hmm. Well, to a certain extent, we need that. <laughs> like, cause mm -hmm. we are, we are our own worst enemies. We will gladly sit around and do nothing if we had the choice but or do something for our own, uh, you know, enjoyment or, or artistic expression rather than working for a client if we had a choice in any given day. But sometimes we need people to kick us in the butt and be like, no, no, you know, you got to do this thing for the client so you can pay your bills. Exactly. I mean, you know, in a in my past life, I also was a, a dance educator and I would have a classroom of 16 teenage girls and I was their dance teacher. I was their mentor. I was their psychologist. I was, sometimes I had to braid hair. You know, it's like, I think I love this idea of wearing lots of hats. It's a tough, a tough side. I mean, as a professor, we do the same thing oftentimes. Like I've had many students come crying to me with family, personal issues and things like this. And it's rewarding many times, but uh, also, you know, not part of the job description, but yet we take it on. You know, there was a program that I was involved with a while back as a mentor through, through the Soho House. And I was paired with a young artist and I really enjoyed that process and that experience. And that's something that I aim to do more of in the future. Like, you know, and maybe it's something that comes out of this podcast, but I love to talk to, you know, younger people or people that are transitioning their career or, you know, something that I see a lot is professional dancers. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to like, I went to college and then 
became a dancer. So I had that college education when I was transitioning out. A lot of professional dancers just graduate high school and go right into it. So like the ballet world, if you're not in a company at 17, you're not going to have a career. But then what happens at 35 when you need a hip replacement and you can't dance anymore? And I think one of my future missions is to get more involved in helping mentor people and letting them realize there's a tremendous amount of opportunities and different skills that you have that could facilitate in lots of industries, college or no college. Well, and that's one of the parts of this podcast as a whole that I really love, which is I, I feel like to a certain extent, I'm introducing people to potential different careers. So like I envision that a lot of my listeners are just out of school, just got their master's or whatever, something like that. And they're thinking like, okay, I got this degree. Now what can I do with it? And there are so many jobs that exist now that didn't exist, you know, when I was young. I keep saying that like I'm really, really old, but you know, back when I got out of school that, that like, I wish these jobs existed and I wish these opportunities were there. And I'm so sad that I didn't have the opportunity to do some of these things when I was younger, or even know that these jobs were opportunities for me. There are amazing opportunities out there. And you, just because you're in the creative industries does not mean you have to be a graphic designer or a, a you know, a graffiti artist or a fine artist or whatever kind of thing you want to be. You can do so many different things, such as yourself. Like you could be a facilitator. You can be the person that connects all these dots. Yeah. And listen, like I'm a proponent for education, but it's expensive. And I have my master's and my daughter's father is Ivy League educated. And the two of us have both turned to her and said, like, if you don't want to go to college, don't go to college. You know, there's, you know, there's so many different things you can do. And it's not necessarily the exact path that you need. Uh, certainly for some things, if she wants to be a veterinarian or a doctor, like you need the schooling, but I don't believe it's the key to success by any means. How old is your daughter? She's 13. Oh, okay. I was like, if this is an eight-year-old and you're talking about college already, that's way too early. Yeah. 13 is acceptable. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because <laughs> like, as a professor, I feel like a lot of the things are, are kind of outdated. Like most of what I teach, and this sounds really bad because of course it's my career, but like most of what I teach, probably 85% of it you can get from YouTube. Like there, you know, there's not yeah. a lot that, that I teach that is not offered already on YouTube for free. And, and so like to a certain extent, like the investment of having to go to again, higher education and all this kind of stuff, it's not truly necessary. I mean, there are certain aspects of those higher education that are very beneficial and all this. So I'm not going to say don't do it. But in reality, it's not, it's nowhere near as necessary as it has been in the history. Yeah. I mean, I agree. But I, and I also think for maturity purposes, some people need that time and need that to be part of their path. But I certainly don't think it's universal. You know, there's the old the old saying, the only thing I learned in college is my social security number. Yeah, because it's your student ID number. Or how to do a keg stand. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's more my college experience. Yeah. We're not going to get into that. But yeah, that's more my, my college. I got kicked out of a college for throwing a really big party, but that's a whole different you know, issue. <laughs> that's another podcast. Oh, I've talked about it before. Yeah. 
It was good times. Good times. <laughs> I've noticed a lot of you have a lot of artists that work with illustration and things like this. Are you involved with NFTs? Oh, I feel like we could talk about that for a whole nother hour. The short answer is yes. I'm starting to come around and more of an education on it. My business partner has a better understanding and interest in them. I'm a little bit of a Luddite and I'm having trouble getting on board, but it's a thing and it's happening with brands and it's definitely something that I have to embrace. Yeah, I'm at this moment with the limited knowledge I have, I'm not a fan. I still feel like at this moment, here's my two cents on on NFTs. I believe to a certain extent they are basically a digital currency that is they've just basically tapped into artists that create visual things and said, hey, make some avatars for our digital currency. And so they're basically kind of just using visual artists to make these little avatars that in the end sell this cryptocurrency for these large corporations. What I want to see is I want to see artists have a little bit more like role and ownership over that process and it not be so much about the cryptocurrency earning a ton of money and the artist earning a little bit of money and not having a place at the table and not having an input and all this kind of stuff and it's a little bit of money laundering of course also <laughs> yeah and i think it you know it reminds me a bit about it for a short period of time i was in music licensing and it kind of reminds me a little bit about like like royalties and licensing music and most favored nations and all of those things. And it's definitely, but I also think it's going to evolve. You know, I'm not somebody that's predicting where it's going to evolve to, but I guess, you know, we all just have to kind of get on board and watch. Well, I hope it evolves. I mean, I'm I'm an optimist in many ways. And, and like, while I currently am not optimistic about where it is today, I am optimistic about it being something really great and something in the future. But again, I just feel like to a certain extent at the moment, the, the cryptocurrency, I don't even know what they are, organizations, corporations, whatever, are sort of using artists to sell their cryptocurrency. And I would like the artist to be a little bit more involved in that process and maybe even, of course, you know, uh, compensated more for their efforts. Yeah. And in terms of like being a collector, I haven't gotten into it. Like if I want to collect art, I want to look at it. I want it to be on my wall. If I'm collecting shoes, I want to see them and I want to see them on my feet. I've never understood that. Like, like I mean, even video art, I don't get how do you collect video art because I'm not going to have it like playing on a loop in my living room. Like, so like, yeah, exactly. It's, I, I'm a very much an object based person. I love objects. You know, even if it like at one point I even collected like uh, billboards and, and advertisements from, I used to work at Banana Republic at doing their visual uh, display stuff. And so like whenever they took down their old vision, I would collect their visual displays. I was like, I just love this stuff. But of course it got too big and cumbersome for me to continue to carry around place to place. So it got, it went the way of the side, but yeah, the NFT thing, I mean, it's a great idea, but like, yeah, I mean, okay, you own it, but what do you do with it? Exactly. I mean, I listened to something on the daily that the New York times put out and they basically summed it up as like just a new toy for people with extra money. 
it's like being a kid and you're you're a kid and you have a baseball card collection, let's say. I'm dating myself here, I know. But like you have a baseball card, it could be a Pokemon collection. I don't care what kind of cards you're collecting. But you, you got a collection and it, it's the pride of ownership more though more so than anything else it's just like i i have a complete set and it's it's sort of like the people who want to collect things they will collect anything and they sort of have chosen nfts to be the collection and i and i admire that i'm a collector in that way so like i like that idea but as an artist i still feel like it's not yet too too much to our advantage to participate yet i think i you know i have relationships with some artists that might disagree but again, I'm still I'm still learning and absorbing more information on the whole topic. And I probably should I have a collection of articles that I want to read that have different perspectives. But yeah, so I would say my opinions on the neutral side right now. I have a friend who has offered to assist me in participating in the nft world and i i keep putting it off but I, I really should engage with it because i feel like it's an opportunity lost also because a lot of like illustrators photographers all these people we have millions of images and and sketches and ideas of things that like wouldn't work for a client or wouldn't work in a gallery or whatever kind of other professional setting we have but would work magnificently as an nft i mean it's a great resource to be able to create additional output additional content into the world and so i appreciate it in that way i think i'm just scared and old <laughs> all right i want to wrap this up with one last little bit which is just um some advice for for people out there so you know creative people who are generally the listeners to this podcast some some advice to help them on their sort of creative journeys and their paths as, you know how could they approach somebody like you how could they work with agencies uh, efficiently and 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 well and things like this i mean i guess my biggest piece of advice would be don't be afraid to ask for help or to reach out and and put yourself out there and then if you are willing to ask for help and put yourself out there, be open-minded to what might come back at you. There are caretakers out there that, that want to help you. Lovely. Thank you very much. Thank you. So nice meeting you. Thank you for listening to The Complete Conversation. We would appreciate it if you would share the podcast with your friends, family, co-workers, or studio mates, anyone with an interest in the arts and creative endeavors. The building and strengthening of the arts and creative community is at the core of our mission for this podcast. They can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are produced by 5014, the audio was edited by Mickey at Cush Audio Services, and the music was created by Pete Bybee. Thanks, Pete. As we know, funding for the arts is incredibly important, so I'd like to express my appreciation for the funding from the EEA grant from Iceland, Liechtenstein, and Norway. They are working together for a green, competitive, and inclusive Europe. We would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunstcentrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes or on our website, wisefoolpod.com.